It really is good to see you this morning, not, not as opposed to last week. Uh, Christmas is interesting. You know, Res is uh, such a, a unique church. We see a big Easter bump, but I feel like every Christmas I'm the only one here uh, because our, your families live out of town and, and so many folks who are members here aren't from here. Um, and so it's an interesting time, but I'm really glad you've chosen to come out and, and worship with us this morning um, as we finish up our Advent series, A Weary World Rejoices. Uh, this morning, I'm actually cheating again for the second time as to my text selection from the lectionary. I'm preaching the Christmas morning text. Uh, perhaps for many of you, it's a familiar one. Luke 2, 1 through 20 that Sam just read is simply Luke's narrative of Christ's birth. It's a true, beautiful, simple, yet profound story. And this morning, really, I'm just going to preach the story. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was hanging out with a mentor of mine, and we were talking about church culture in the United States and all sorts of things from the macro level to the micro level, uh, about our ministries, our lives, and ministry in the U.S. in general. And he said in a quote that kind of stuck with me, he said, man, ain't much market for what we do. There ain't a lot of people doing the sort of thing we do. We just preach the story, my man. We just preach the story, man. We just stick to the story. I thought of that conversation throughout this whole Advent season, and especially this morning, as the weight of preaching God's word to God's people on Christmas sets in. We just preach the story, man. Perhaps if my straightforward approach to our text this morning disappoints you, let me remind you of the lyrics of an old hymn penned sometime in the late 19th and early 20th century. I love to tell the story for, here's the key words, for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, it will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. We stick to the story because stories function at a level deeper than the intellect. You don't read great books and watch great movies because they teach you three or four ways to be a better person. Great lasting stories, whether they be movies or books or whatever they may be, they last because they teach us something deeper than the things we can merely learn intellectually. They make us feel a certain way. Stories shape us. Stories help us perceive the world and our place in it. The stories we tell as cultures reflect the values we hold as a people. And then these stories help form the values for the generation that follows us. Stories then shape us. Stories teach us who we are and stories teach us what matters. Stories, simply put, teach us how to live. The glory of the Bible is that the Bible is God's story. From glory to glory, God is orchestrating all things according to his will towards his desired ends. The Christmas story, which we celebrate this morning, is a crucial part of the Christian story. This morning, then, I want to consider how the Christmas story helps us understand the Christian story. Simply put, what can we learn from Luke's retelling of the incarnation, 
that will help us think rightly about our identity as God's people and our role in God's story. Our sermon will be organized around three points as we go through the text. The first point is simply this, God acts in history. The second point will be God pursues the outsider. And the third point will be that God is serious about joy. God is serious about joy. Look with me in Luke chapter 2 again. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Serenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, an 85, 86, 87-mile journey. Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. I alluded last week to this idea that Christianity stands alone among the pantheon of world religions because Christianity is at its core a pronouncement of news. As one theologian puts it, the theology itself is found in the news. It's not news about a theology. The theology is the news. What I mean is this. A teacher did not gain some insight into life that he or she thought might be helpful for the rest of the world to learn. A religious sage, a guru, or a priest did not come up with a way of living that would relieve us of all suffering. They did not come up with a way of living that would guarantee our passage into this idyllic afterlife. No. In Christianity, God came to earth. The Christian message, the Christian story is grounded in things that really happened, in places that really exist with people who really lived. Let's focus on verses 1 through 7 for a couple of moments. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Luke just assumes his readers know who Caesar Augustus is because everyone in those days and most throughout world history would know who Caesar Augustus is. Caesar Augustus, in our text this morning, decrees that all the world, all the Roman world, right, all the Roman world should be registered. This registration grew as an attempt to uh, standardize the way the empire received their taxes. In many ways, it also was sort of a forerunner to military conscription. So one day they show up at your house to register you. The next day they show up at your house to bring you and make you fight a war for the empire. The census itself was a delicate, delicate topic among the Jewish people because it was an ever-present reminder of their Roman overlords. It's not so much about the money. It wasn't that much money. It's about the Jewish station as an oppressed people. Luke talks a lot about this. In verses 1 through 7, it seems to actually get more ink than the actual birth of Jesus. He's explaining the census. He's explaining uh, all that's going on. And then, oh, and while they were there, he gave birth to Jesus, the Son of God. So the one who's ordered this registration, the one who's ordered this census, is the great Caesar Augustus. Who is this guy? Well, Caesar Augustus was born with the name Gaius Octavian. He was the grandnephew and eventual adopted son of someone else you may have heard, Julius Caesar. In BCE 27, Augustus was recognized as the sole leader of the Roman world, and the Senate gave him the name slash title Caesar Augustus. 
Having restored Roman rule through imperial conquest, he was considered by his people more so God than human, right? He was worshipped. He was the vehicle through which justice came to the world. If you study world history in grade school or middle school or high school, you learn of the Pax Romana, right? The peace of Rome, that, that Rome's place as a great empire created this stability and peace in the world. And so many, many people believe that the leader of the Roman Empire was the one through whom peace has come to the world. And so Caesar Augustus was this exalted being in his day and his time. He was quite literally deified. One inscription of him reads as follows, divine Caesar Augustus, son of a god, emperor of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. His might and power, good Roman citizens would proclaim, have brought peace to the world. This Caesar, this self-proclaimed son of a god, this self-proclaimed savior and benefactor of the whole world, has proclaimed that all people everywhere should go to their homeland to be registered. So Joseph and his pregnant wife trek some 80 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, just as the almighty emperor had commanded. And Luke slips in there in verse 6. Oh, and while they were there, while they were there in Bethlehem, they gave birth. Suddenly, like, was it like one of those, you know, when I picture the Christmas story, uh, I picture this sort of like, you know, this, 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 this long trek, and Mary's on a donkey, and Joseph's pulling the donkey, and he's really tired, right? And they, they get to Bethlehem at 2 a.m., you know, and, and they're looking for a hotel, and the Hampton Inn's closed, the Holiday Inn's closed, the Motel 6 is even closed, you know what I'm saying? And they can't get anywhere, and so they're looking around looking for a place to stay. They're like, oh, no, we can't find anywhere to stay. And then she's like, oh, I think I'm having a baby, you know, I think I'm having a baby. And then in this flurry of a moment, they're all flustered, and there's nowhere to stay, and Mary's having a baby, and she goes to this barn because they can't find anywhere. And then they, they sit there together and then boom, a baby's born. Is that how it happened? I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Verse six, while they were there, we don't know how long they were there. We don't know if it was immediate. It was a couple days while they were there because Caesar Augustus told them to. The time came for her to give birth. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lied, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. What does this mean, there was no place for them in the end? You've heard many, many sermons about there's uh, no place for him in the end. Will you make room for Jesus in your hearts? And, and that may be one application. We don't know exactly what this means. The inn, very likely, was a sort of guest house, right? The inn, very likely, was a part of a peasant family's home. The inn could have been a commercial sort of guest house, almost like what we would see today. The inn could have been like a, almost a caravan where all these people who are coming from the outside come to Bethlehem, and it's a small city, and all these people are coming home to their ancestral home for this census, and they would travel together for safety and for protection. And so the inn could be this, this, this place where they would all gather together, a, a bunch of migrants who have come home for the census, I personally believe the inn refers to this idea of a guest room, as the Greek word could translate. That it was going to be like a guest room of a peasant's house. Because a peasant would live with their animals and everything just in kind of one room, and then maybe off to the other side would be a room that was a guest room for other peasants who would come and stay with them, perhaps their family or whatever. So understanding this, the understanding sort of the, the, the possibility of, of setting and time and place 
Let's see the cross-section of intentions here. Let's see some theology here. Are Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem? Are they going to this inn, whatever it looks like, because of Caesar? Yes. But is this the only reason they're in Bethlehem? No. We know from the Old Testament scriptures that God had a promise to keep to a little Judean, Judean village. In Micah 5.2, the prophet says, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the littlest clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel. On one level, yeah, they're in Bethlehem because of Caesar. But on another level, the universal rule of Caesar (laughs) is subordinate to someone else. Imagine the, the irony of this moment, right? That Caesar has decreed that all the world should go back to their homeland. And here is humble little Joseph and Mary who have nothing to speak of. They're going back to their town on this grueling journey. They get there. It's not a comfortable setup, whatever that looks like. And it's time to have birth. And it looks like it's all going according to Caesar Augustus's plan. But unbeknownst to Caesar Augustus, Joseph and Mary would have been there anyways. Unbeknownst to Caesar Augustus, he is but a pawn in the hands of the real sovereign ruler of the universe. Ironic? Oh yeah, but even more than ironic, it is prophetic. Because even the most powerful man on earth is subservient to God. Caesar has no idea that his decree has sealed his demise because in the guest room of a poor peasant's home, a peasant he is exploiting is being born the king of kings and justice is coming in his wings. Church, our God is active in history. The rules of Caesar do not exist apart from the sovereign will of the Lord our God. Caesar is no son of God. Jesus, the son of God, is born this day. Why does it matter to you? Why does it matter to me that our God acts in history and that our faith is is grounded in history, not just this intellectual framework of belief? I think it matters in a couple of ways. One, you can trust that your faith is grounded in reality that your faith in Jesus is strong, that something really happened in history that you can tether your world to, you can tether your way of seeing the world to, that your faith is grounded in real things that actually happened. And you can trust that no matter how bleak things may seem, no matter how strong Caesar may seem, that God is still sovereign and that God will still have his way in your life is no exception. If God will bring his will to pass through Caesar Augustus, who thinks he's got it all, surely God will bring his will to pass through you. Point number two this morning, we see that God pursues the outsider. Let's look at verses 8 through 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch of their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Uh, you got to be careful doing this, but let's just imagine for a moment with our sanctified imaginations uh, how, the she- how the angels may appear today. We could read it like this, right? In that same region, there were that night truck drivers driving down 77 with a big thing of Coke and talk radio about aliens. Y'all ever listen to talk radio at 3 a.m.? Man, that's the cream of the crop right there. In that same region, there were waitresses at Waffle House serving their customers by night. In that same region, there were janitors cleaning up after a high school basketball game, locking up the school by night. In that same region, our text reads, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over the flock by night. These shepherds weren't the people that everyone else looked up to. These shepherds weren't the people who had the most money. They weren't the people who had the most influence. They weren't the people who had the most power. In some contexts, shepherds were actually sort of um, looked down upon. They were actually, people were actually skeptical of shepherds. They almost saw them as uh, people for hire, right? Almost like nomadic wanderers who look for someone else's stuff to look after. These are normal, everyday people. These are people that Caesar would never even acknowledge existed. These are people that at best the world would ignore and at worst the world would scoff at. But it was to these people that the glory of the Lord appears. And with that context, with that in mind, I read this again with eyes to look at the pronouns that are being used. The angel said to them, verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring who good news? I bring you good news. (laughs) Shepherds, I I have good news for you. Waitress at Waffle House, I have good news for you. Truck driver barreling your way down 77, may the Lord be with you. I have good news for you. Jander who the kids mock and the teachers say things like, go to college, you don't have to be like that guy, right? I have good news for you. Unto you this day. Not unto Caesar this day. Not unto the elite this day. Not unto the best. Not even unto other people alone, right? But the angel's saying, unto you. Unto you guys. is good news of great joy. It's going to be for all people. Because unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Church, don't miss this. The royal announcement of birth has gone to shepherds while the kings of the earth are sleeping. So tell me again why you think God doesn't see you. Verses 13 to 14, and suddenly there's a great multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Caesar Augustus isn't bringing peace, right? Jesus the Christ is bringing peace. We see titles given our Lord in verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ, who is Messiah, who is the chosen one, who is the one from the lineage of David, who is the one that was foretold throughout the Old Testament. The Messiah, the Christ, has come. And this Christ, this Messiah, is Lord. He is the one who will save. He is the one who will rule. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Messiah the Lord, who is Christ the Lord, who is Christ our King. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And so they go. And so they go to find him. They go to find the sign that had been foretold them. Point number two has been that God pursues the outsider. Why does this matter to you? It matters to you and it matters to me because nobodies are somebodies in God's economy. In God's economy, people who the world sees as nothing, God sees as something. God has come to establish his kingdom, and his kingdom looks upside down to the rest of the world. The last will be first, and the first will be last. Bless those who are persecuted, right? Bless those who are ruled by Rome. Bless those, in essence, right, who have to submit to a stupid census because Caesar Augustus thinks he has the right to do that in these people's lives. Bless those who are persecuted, Bless those who are last. Bless those who are forgotten. Bless those who grieve. Bless those who mourn. Bless those who are afraid. Bless those who are in darkness. Because God has come to make all things right, and nothing will be the same. Why does this matter to you? Because it reminds you again that God loves and pursues broken people. Perhaps you've gone farther than you've ever thought you would, right? You've strayed far from God. Your life is nothing like you thought it'd be this morning. The message of Christmas, I think, is God sees you. God knows that. And God's not afraid of you. Our God loves and pursues broken people. There is a place in God's story for all of us. The coming of Christ is good news of great joy for all people. And I would add, if your theology tries to redefine all people, then your theology is bad. The third point. God is serious about joy. God is serious about joy, right? The angels say they bring good news of great joy which is for all people. The content of the news, which is for all people, is great joy. The news is good itself, but, but it doesn't really matter if it's not been appropriated to you. It's not good for you, or you don't have a response to this objectively good news until that news is appropriated for you. Like if they say all residents of Virginia will have their student loans removed. That's great news for everyone in that second Virginia. That's not really good news for me because I've got student debt and I live in West Virginia. It's good news for them, but it hasn't been appropriated to me, so I'm not over here jumping and rejoicing and, 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 and proclaiming this Christmas miracle, right? The same is true, I think, with Christ in our lives. It's good news that he's come to the earth. It's good news that at his name all oppression will end. It's good news that sinful man has a way of salvation. It's good news that we can be made right and put in right relationship with God our Father, a holy God. It's good news that we can be in heaven with, with God when we die. It's good news that Jesus will return and judge the world. It's good news that he will establish his kingdom. And as our, our text read in the liturgy, there will be no end of his government. There will be no end of his peace 
as it extends. This is all really great news, but has it been appropriated to you? I know it's good news, but are you glad about this good news? Great joy comes when good news is appropriated to me. So the shepherds go. In faith and obedience, they go. And sure enough, they find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths. They tell everyone present, Joseph and Mary and whoever else is there at this point, right? They tell them exactly what they had heard, and they all marvel. They're speechless. You know, they have no categories for this. Like, what in the world is going on? These angels told me that the Messiah, the Lord, has come unto you, is born this day in the city of David, the Savior, who is Christ the King. Like, is that this baby? Like, this is incredible. They're all just pondering. They're marveling. They're wondering what's going on. And Luke shifts his attention to Mary. Verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen as it had been told them. I think in some ways us evangelicals uh, don't give very much attention to Mary at all because we're scared we'll deify her. We're not scared we could accidentally deify Paul. <laughs> but we're scared we could accidentally deify Mary. She treasures these things that have been told her. She ponders them in her heart. And as I read this text, I just feel like she's present, man. She's just there. She's just listening to what the shepherds are saying. She's seeing what's happened. She's in pain because she just had a baby, right? She's just treasuring all these things. She's seeing these things, and she's storing them up. Like, I need to know this. I need to remember this. I want to I know what it feels like right now. I want to know what it feels like that God is here and that this moment has come. I want to be present. I want to know what this is like. She treasures these things, and she ponders them. And the text feels like she can't quite put her finger on what all of this means, but she knows it's a really big deal. And she's trusting God through it all. I think about Mary's Magnificat, her song to the Lord right before all this has happened. Back in chapter 1, verse 46, the text reads, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary, in these crucial moments of her life, seems acutely aware that her life is situated so uniquely in God's story that all generations would look back and call her blessed because she was the one through whom God would come to the earth. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Is she overwhelmed by these things? Probably. Is she overwhelmed by these things? Maybe. But I know she's treasuring these things. 
she's savoring the grace of God in her life. If ever there was a moment she could look ahead and be like, I cannot do this. <laughs> right? I, I can't raise God. Imagine being Mary. I mean, use your sanctified imaginations again. I imagine being this young woman with little to no resources. I mean, raising a baby is hard enough. I've never done that. I've got two dogs. It's, it's impossible. And babies are humans. They matter more than dogs. Like, like it's a big deal. This baby's going to learn how to see the world. He's going to learn how to live. And, and you're going to teach him all these things. And here's Mary smack in the middle of God's story. And God's looked at her for whatever reason, chosen her to be the one through whom he comes to the world. Like if there was ever a moment for a nervous breakdown, it's that one. Like if I'm Mary, I'm at the doctor before the angels finish talking. Like this is a huge, intimidating, scary moment. This is life altering. This is changing everything. But here's what Mary understood. This is God's doing. God's doing this. God is good. And I can trust him. So rejoice. Don't look at the weight of the task and cower. Look at the size of your Lord and rejoice. God is serious about joy. And why does that matter to you? Perhaps as I'm preaching, you can already hear the application. This is a weighty thing, but this is good news. I don't know what heavy things lie ahead of you, what weighty tasks as a parent, as an employee, as an employer, as a pastor, as a teacher, as a whatever. I don't know what weighty task lies in front of you. But I know that your task is situated in the context of God's story. And I know that God is desiring to use you and your task in some way to bring about his desired plans for the world. And I believe in the middle of that, in the middle of that knowing that your life matters eternally, that your life matters in God's economy and that God is using your life for something that matters, in the middle of all of that, hear the most, com the most repeated command of Scripture, which is simply to rejoice. From Genesis to Revelation, the most often repeated command in the Bible is some form of the command to rejoice. Joy is the serious business of heaven. Weary world, rejoice. Your Savior has come. God is with us. And though the tasks ahead of us, wherever they may be, are daunting, God will be with you. I'm not naive enough to believe that Christmas this year will be easy for all of you. Some of you have experienced great loss this year. Christmas this year won't be like Christmas last year. And for those of us, as we look to next year, Christmas next year, I hate to tell you, won't be like Christmas this year. For some of us, the holidays are a painful time of year. And to you, I want to remind you not to run from that. Lean into that. 
Lean into the God who will wipe away every tear from your eye and in the middle of your pain, rejoice. Weary world, weary brothers and sisters in Christ, rejoice. Because your God, your King, your Savior has come. As we come full circle, we ask the question we asked at the onset. What can we learn from Luke's retelling of the incarnation that will help us think rightly about our identity as God's people and our role in God's story? We just saw three things. We saw that God acts in history. And because God acts in history, my faith has a strong foundation. Because God acts in history, the things I do on a daily basis matter. Because God acts in history, I can trust God's plan for my life. We've learned that God pursues the outsider. And that because God pursues the outsider, I can trust and believe that God pursues me. I can trust and know that if God sees a shepherd in the middle of a nowhere town in the Middle East on a cold night back in the first century, that God sees me here this morning. God loves and pursues broken and forgotten people. And we've learned that God is serious about joy. That Jesus is worth your life. That though Mary looked ahead and saw suffering, she saw fear, she saw rejection, she had no idea what all this would mean. Mary herself had no way of knowing in those moments that that cross was looming before them in just 30-some years. Mary had no way of knowing the heartache of loss and the pain that would come with it. She just knew something big was happening. She just knew God was using her. But more profoundly, she knew God was there. And in the middle of your stuff this morning, in God the Holy Spirit, whatever you're walking through, you can know and you can trust that God is there. That God is serious about your joy. And he draws near to his people and comforts the brokenhearted. God acts in history. God pursues the outsider, and God is serious about your joy. Worship team, if you guys would come on up. As we think about the Christmas story in relation to the Christian story, uh, we know that the baby born in a manger, the baby born in a manger would be one day laid in a grave. But the manger and the grave have something in common. <laughs> the manger and the grave are both borrowed. The manger isn't where this babe would stay. And neither is the grave. Luke uh, very powerfully connects the incarnation with the crucifixion. Right? In Luke 2.7, the text reads, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. In Luke 23, 53, Christ has died and the words are almost identical. They wrapped him in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb. At the beginning of the narrative, Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloths. Hope and expectation abound. 
And then in Luke 23:53, things are quiet once again. But hope and expectation are gone. It's over. They wrap his body in cloth again. And he's laid in the tomb. When I was studying this, I found that a lot of the early iconography, so a lot of the early icons that the church used not to worship, but to tell the story of the Bible in powerful and vivid ways. A lot of those icons saw baby Jesus, and the manger was a sepulcher. The manger was a grave. Because early commentators of Scripture noticed this parallel that Luke draws between the birth of Christ and ultimately the death of Christ. That this baby born in a manger would die. But this baby born in a manger, a food trough, would be the bread of life. This baby born in Bethlehem, that place, Lechem, bread. This baby born in a food trough in a place called the place of bread would be the bread of life on whom the whole world would feed. This baby would live a perfect life. This child would grow into an adult. This adult would live a perfect life according to the will of God. He would die in the place of sinners like us. And he would be buried in that borrowed tomb. But he would not stay there. He would rise victoriously from the grave, bringing life and light to all. And he will again return to establish his kingdom. And of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. What do we have of Caesar Augustus today? Some broken roads and some inscriptions and some dilapidated buildings. It's what the most powerful man on earth left behind. The son of God, Caesar Augustus, is dead. Jesus, the son of God, who came to seek and save the lost, who showed up to a bunch of shepherds to announce his birth in the corner of a peasant's home, is alive. And he rules and reigns forevermore. Would you pray with me? Lord, this time of year, we can get so caught up in, uh, in, in, in traditions. And, and some of those traditions are so helpful and so good. But this morning, we remind us of the great story, the story this is all about, the story of you making all things new, through the blood of your cross. And we reflect on our situation this morning as we think about Christmas, as we think about the coming of Christ, as we think about his incarnation as taking on flesh and, and, and living among us. As we reflect on that reality, we think about what you're doing in the world. We think about how you're guiding history to your desired ends. We think about how you're pursuing outsiders, people like me, and to even convict me more, the people that I walk right past, the people I take for granted, the people I subconsciously and in my sin and pride look down on. Those people, Lord, you love and value and you pursue them. And Lord, you are serious about joy. 
in your dawning is good news of great joy, which is for all people. And if it's for all people, then it's for me. And I pray that under the sound of my voice, Lord, you would remind all of us that that news, that good news of great joy, it's for them. Thank you, Lord, for coming to seek and save the lost when we deserved it not. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.